Well, we're in chapter 30 of the book of Exodus. My hope is that we can finish a section tonight. What I mean by that, starting back in chapter 25, we've been tracking as God has been giving to Moses on Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments and the plans for the tabernacle. And we've talked and talked and talked and talked about that. Well, hopefully if we can get through chapter 30 and 31, we'll kind of finish that section and then kind of pick up with the narrative uh, next week where he comes down off the mountain, everybody obeys all the laws, and everything goes perfectly for the children of Israel. That's not really how it plays out, but uh, we, it's going to be interesting to get to that. So we're going to move hopefully fairly quickly. I won't comment on every verse, but a lot of these things kind of speak for themselves, so um, we'll kind of stop along the way. So chapter 30, verse 1 um, Moses continues to receive instructions about the priesthood and the tabernacle. And let's go ahead and read verse 1. It says this, You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. And it shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one uh, piece with it. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make... Uh, molding of gold around it, or like a crown. Verse 4. You shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding, on the two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for the poles to which to carry it. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the Ark of the, co- uh, that is above the, Ark of the Covenant, or the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular or continual incense offering before the Lord throughout all your generations. Generations, excuse me. And you shall not offer uh, before the Lord, excuse me, you shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering and the atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Well, what we just read was the final piece of furniture, if you want to use that word, that would go into the tabernacle proper, the actual tent that we've been talking about. It has all these other furnishings that we've taught on and looked at, but there's one last piece of furniture that's mentioned here, and it's called the altar of incense. Basically, all it was was a little table, about three feet high, 18 inches square. It's got a little rim around the top. It's made of acacia wood and covered in pure gold. Little horns on the corners, and just a very simple little table. It was placed, significantly, right up against the curtain or the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Does that make sense? So it wasn't in the holy of holies, but it was right up against that veil. And then um, what was done on it was basically, hold on, I'm getting wind blown over here. Basically what it was is, um, as we read, Aaron, the priest, was to go in twice a day. At the same time, he would trim the wicks of the lamps and fill them with oil and all of that. He was also to go over and burn this special incense unto the Lord. And he would do it in the morning, and he would do it in the evening. And he would do it in the morning, and he would do it in the evening. And the idea was it was to be this continual 
rising of smoke or, you know, incense up to the Lord all the time. And I can't even imagine, you know, it's not a big tent. And burning that incense in there, I'm sure that place was just filled and overwhelming with the smell of the incense. And so, really beautiful, beautiful scene. Now, what's this all about? Basically, guys, um, the thing that we want to draw from this is prayer, excuse me, incense in the Bible. There, I just showed my hand. Incense in the Bible is often um, typical of prayer. Psalm 141, check it out. I'll read it to you. It's actually a great psalm. Psalm 141, verse 1 says, O Lord, I call upon you. Listen to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Revelation 5, 8, and, and later on in Revelation chapter 8, talks about these incense bowls that are filled, and it says, and these are the prayers of the saints. So when you read about the incense, it's often typical of just like prayers rising up before God, and in a sense kind of filling his nostrils. That's kind of like our prayers rising up to God. Does that make sense? Now, here's what we learn about this little altar of incense. Just like every other piece of furniture in the tabernacle, this also ultimately speaks of Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. This prayer or this incense was to be continual all the time, never-ending. One of the most beautiful passages in my mind is in Hebrews chapter 7. And I actually want to read it to you guys. Hebrews chapter 7, speaking of Jesus as our great high priest. And again, Hebrews is making the case that Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Aaronic priesthood or the, the Levitical priesthood. And one of the reasons for that is this. Look at, listen to verse 23 of Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, they just kept dying. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, listen, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, that is through Jesus, since he, that is Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them or for us. What the author of Hebrews is saying is this. All the other priests kept dying. Jesus died once but raised from the dead, and lives forever. Can I get an amen? Because he's alive, it says he's able to save to the uttermost. That's a great word. If you get around to finding a concordance or whatever, look up that word. To the uttermost, it means utterly and completely. Jesus, listen, because he's alive, is able to save us completely, body mind, and soul to the bitter end. He is our Savior. Amen? I'm, see, guys, this is why it's so different for us as Christians. We're not worshiping some method. We're not worshiping some ideology. We're worshiping a risen Savior, and because He's alive, He's actually able to save us. What good is a dead Savior? What good is a dead leader? No good at all. But our Savior died once but lives forever. And because of that, as Hebrews says, consequently, he's able to save us. Well, I thought I was saved. I got saved when I was born again. Yes, you got saved in the sense of your sins were paid for. You're righteous in God's eyes. You're going to heaven. But how, you, how many of you guys know that we still need saving every single day? 
saving from ourselves, saving from our situations. We look to God for help, and there's Jesus, whoever lives to make intercession for us. Those who draw near to him, who need him, who come to him, who come to the Father through Jesus, he's able to save because he's alive, and he's always making intercession or literally intervening for you and for me. Jesus is praying for you right now. Amen? He's talking to the Father about your situation. He's able to save you. I don't know, I don't know about you guys. Anybody ever go through anything heavy and they need extra prayer support in their life? Dude, I don't hesitate. I'm not one of those guys that just tries to put it on my back. No, call me a wimp, whatever. I know you do, Lorenzo. Where are you at? I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. Dude, I get on the phone. I'm like, bro, I need some prayer. Pray for me. Pray for this. Pray for that. But how awesome is it that the Lord is on our, our case? The Lord is lifting us up. The Lord is on your side. Amen? So I love that because this continual burnt offering, first and foremost, speaks of Jesus' continual intercession for us. But it also has another application because, remember, Peter says that as believers, we're a royal priesthood, that we also can have this ministry of prayer. Just, you know, you can talk and talk and talk and talk about prayer and its significance and importance, but I just want to bring out this, this one thing, or maybe two, but you guys notice where that was placed, right? The altar of incense? Where was it? It was right up against the veil. That was the closest you could get to the presence of God without actually going behind the veil. Does that make sense? It's as if it's like this object lesson saying, you know when you're going to be closest to God's presence? In prayer. Kneeling down, burning that incense. Guys, that was the greatest, barring the actual going behind the veil once a year on the Day of Atonement, barring that, to be counted as the priest that gets to go in and burn incense was the greatest privilege as a priest. You guys, there's actually an example of this in Luke chapter 1. Zacharias was a priest, uh, the dad of John, the Baptist. You guys remember that? And it says that the lots were cast. It was his turn. He got to go in for the week or the month or however that worked out. It was his, he got called. You know, some priests would go their whole life and never get the opportunity to actually go in there and do that ministry. And he got to go in. Guys, that was the greatest privilege of any priest was to get to go and burn incense to the Lord. And I just want to remind us of this. Prayer is our greatest privilege. Amen? Just, just think about that for a second. We get to approach the God of the universe. We can freely come anytime and bring anything and everything in our heart and our mind. And we can just lay it at his feet. We can talk to him wherever. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to a special building. You don't have to come to this church. In your room, in your car, wherever you are, you can just pray to the God of the universe and he listens to you. He listens to me. Amen? And what convicts me about that a little bit is it's such a privilege and yet how often I take it so lightly or just kind of shun it altogether. And I'm convicted by that. And I don't think God's like, yeah, why don't you come and pray to me? I just think he's more like, why don't you come and pray? Pour out your heart. Let me hear what you're going through. Talk to me. It is our greatest privilege. And I'll tell you, I am the closest to God when I'm just alone with him in prayer. 
Amen? You know, the other thing I notice about this regular, continual burnt offering of, or excuse me, incense offering, three things I notice about it. Number one, it was regular. It was secluded in that it was hidden away from the crowd. Nobody else was watching. It was just God and that priest. And did you notice at the end of that section, it was not to have any other offering put up on that altar. It was exclusively just for the incense prayer. There wasn't a burnt offering. There wasn't like a drink offering poured on it. One thing, just the incense. I like that. Regular, secluded, and undistracted, unmixed. Anybody have any, this may not apply to you guys or any of us at this church, but I'll just throw it out there just in case. Anybody ever struggle with their prayer life? Yeah. Everybody ever, anybody, you want to make a Christian feel guilty? So easy, just go, how's your prayer life going? And they're just like, me. I mean, we all feel like we know we should pray, we know it's good to pray, and then we're like, I probably don't pray enough, and and I don't think the Lord wants us to feel guilty about that, but I do think we could take a lesson from the apostles who said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I've, I've shared my testimony, you know, years and years ago. I'd been a pastor for a decade or, pl- or more. And I just felt the Lord touch that little area in my life and say, Jason, you need to learn how to pray. I mean, I'm pastoring, I'm teaching. It's not like I didn't pray or didn't know how to pray at all, but I, it was just such a lacking area of my life, and I felt like I'm so self-dependent and self-reliant, and I realized I really don't know how to just pray, to be alone and do nothing else but pray. And it's kind of like when you realize you're out of shape and you need to go to the gym, and then you, like, watch the PX952125, whatever the latest video is, like, late night TV, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get in shape. And you go to the gym the next day, and you just go hard. And then you can't move the next three days. And then you're like, maybe I won't do that. And sometimes we kind of do that with prayer. In other words, we're like, sometimes I think bite off more than we can chew. Like, I I love to read guys that pray. Ian Bounds, you know, Spurgeon. I love reading those guys. I'm inspired by those guys. And they're they're spending three, four, five, six hours in the morning of prayer before the sun comes up. And I'm like, I'm going to do that. And I'm like six minutes in, and I'm like, or I run out of things. That's and, you know, I think we just need to be realistic about this. You know, d- don't try to be those guys, but, but be honest with God. Like, you know, in just my particular case, I had to, like, learn how to pray. Like, God, I want to learn how to pray. And so I, I realized I need a regular time to pray. I need to set aside a regular time where I do nothing but pray. Well, we can pray without ceasing. Pray while you drive in the car and pray all the time. Do that. But also have a time where there's nothing but prayer going on quiet, like Jesus, away from the crowds. And you know, I had to just get, find my place and just say, I'm going to pray for 10 minutes. Like, I'm going to make my goal of praying for 10 minutes. And it was hard. But you know what? The best way to learn how to pray is to pray. It's, It's to put the book about prayer down and to actually go pray and talk to the Lord, and read the prayers in the Bible, and pray them back to God, and usually I just blurt everything out that I'm thinking, and then I stop, and I listen to God. That's actually when my prayers start, and I just learn how to pray. I want to encourage you. There's a model here. It was regular. It was undistracted. It was secluded away from the crowd. Find a place. Find a time in the day. Find it early morning or late night, and there was nothing but prayer going on, and I'll tell you, 
I read this, this book <laughs> on prayer recently, and this guy was talking about over the years as he learned how to pray, the greatest answer to prayer was not all the stuff that he could check off that God did, God did, God did, God did, all, God did all this stuff. The greatest answer to prayer was just praying, just learning how to be with the Lord. That's the greatest reward of prayer. Amen? So all that to say is that this was the greatest privilege of the priest ministry was prayer. Well, let's move on, and, and I took way too long on that, but it's an important topic. And let's look at this next section. Uh, it'll, it'll go pretty quick. I'm not going to comment a lot on this because a lot of these things resurface in a couple of chapters. So, And the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, teach them to give a ran- each of them shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them. When you number them, each one who is numbered in the census shall give his half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Uh, it's 20 giras, if you're interested, by the way. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census, with 20 years old and upward, shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less. The half shekel, when you give it to the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it to the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for their lives. So Moses was told, hey, there's going to be a census. And now, by the way, this is not a census in the strictest definition of what a census is. It's not counting all the people. It was just reserved for the males who are 20 years old and up. And I think later on it gives the number of like 603,550 was the number or something like that. Each one of them was to give a half shekel, and that money was taken and then used in the, in the building of the tabernacle. And there's some interesting things about this. Um, you know, it was called a ransom. One of the best comments I read on this was that counting denotes ownership. And I think one of the things God was communicating to Israel is, Israel, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to me. And so when you count, you're going to give that ransom money. What was the sin of David? 2 Samuel chapter 24. He numbered the people. There was no ransom money given. There was no acknowledgement of that that were yours, Lord. It was more the idea of David was counting out of pride to see how big his kingdom was. And remember, God brought that plague. Fascinating. Um, Later on, by the way, this becomes kind of morphs into Matthew 17, hints at the fact that it kind of morphs into this temple tax that was taken uh, later on in Jesus' day. Let's just keep going. Um, Verse 17. I love this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, You shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. And you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. And Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. And when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, listen to this, so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they shall not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him uh, and to his offspring throughout their generations. This is interesting. Now, we just read about the last piece of furniture within the tabernacle. This is kind of the last component outside the tabernacle. And remember, there was the altar, the bronze altar and all that. But now, 
there to construct this bronze, and it would have been like polished bronze, like you could see your reflection in it. And there's no specs given on how big it was, but basically it was just a big bowl of water that was supposed to be positioned. Now think in your mind's eye, you'd walk into the courtyard, there'd be the altar, and there'd be the tabernacle, and in between the altar and the tabernacle, boop, was this basin of water for what purpose? So that before, listen, not to wash the blood off necessarily, before they actually ministered to the Lord in killing the offering, and before they actually pulled back the, the entrance to the tabernacle and went in and ministered within the tabernacle, before any of that, they had to do a ceremonial washing of their hands and washing of their feet. I don't think that they were like getting out like the, the soap and like scrubbing under their fingernails. It was more like a ceremonial thing, but it's communicating something. Listen, yes, you've done the burnt offerings. Yes, you've done the sin offerings. So in a sense, that big work has been done. But you know what? Before you actually put your hands to ministering to me and before you go into the tent and have fellowship with me, just wash your hands and feet real quick. Get any defilement, that's the idea, wash any defilement that may have gotten on you in between then and now off so that you can minister and so that you can have fellowship. Are you guys tracking with me on this? See, to me, this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. I think it pictures a lot of things. You know, water is a picture of the Word of God, and the Word of God is cleansing, and you could pull an application of that for sure. But to me, I think the application that really pops out of this for me is, is this. This is to me a picture of confession. Confession. Now, just bear with me for a second. Confession. It makes me think of John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus is with his disciples. They've had their dinner. He's hours away from going to the cross. He knows it. They're all sitting around. They borrowed the room, and so the ordinary custom of the lowest servant of the house washing the feet of the disciples. That hasn't been done because they borrowed this room and there's no servant to do that. So Jesus, while they're kind of distracted with conversation or whatever, I always picture it like that anyway, he takes his robe off, strips down to the bare essentials, gets down, gets, and I, I wonder sometimes if they weren't just kind of watching him out of the corner of their eye, like what's, what's Jesus doing? He gets a bowl of water and he just gets down on his knees and, and just starts washing the feet of the disciples, taking the place of the lowest servant of the house. Think about it. The creator of dirt and water was washing the feet of his disciples. You guys remember what happened? He gets to Peter in classic Peter style. He's like, you will never wash my feet, Jesus. It's like, you know, it's like I always imagine the room kind of got quieter and quieter as they're like, what is Jesus doing? He's washing our feet. And, and, and almost kind of picture Peter almost choked up like, this ain't right. We should be washing your feet. That's kind of what he's saying. He's like, you'll, you'll never wash my feet, Jesus. Jesus says something very interesting. He says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, I'm paraphrasing, by the way, go back and read it. If you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no part or share with me. That, that word literally means to participate in something together. If you don't let me wash your feet, Peter, you can't participate with me. So again, in classic Peter style, he says, then wash my whole body, Jesus. <laughs> like, 
Well, if that's what it takes, I want all of you to just wash all of me. And then Jesus says something very fascinating. He says, you don't need to have a bath. The person that's had a bath just needs their feet washed. You're already clean. You just need your feet washed. And guys, that's how it is for us. The big work has been done. Amen? Jesus has cleansed us by his blood that he shed for us on the cross. And if you're a born-again Christian, you are clean. You are forgiven. You are righteous in his sight. You are going to heaven. You, are, you have right standing with God. It's all true. All of your sins, past, present, future, they're all forgiven. They're all under the blood of Jesus. Somebody say amen. amen. Thank you, Mitch. But how many of you guys know that even though we, we've been forgiven and we're born again, we go through this world and we walk in this world and we pick up stuff with our hands that we shouldn't touch and we go places we shouldn't go and we get dirty. It's kind of like an outdoor shower. That's one of the things I really like about Hawaii. Like there's a lot of outdoor showers in places. And you know, you, you go, let's just say you have a, an outdoor shower at your house. Some of you guys probably do. And maybe you go out there and you take your shower and you get all done. And I was house sitting at this house a while back and I had this really cool outdoor shower. Then you had to walk around the front yard and just kind of go back into the house. Well, I'm clean. I've had my shower. But guess what? I had to like wipe my feet off before I went in the house because my feet got dirty just walking around the house. Does that make sense? That's kind of the picture. You've been washed by the blood of Jesus. But as we go through our day, we just pick up dirt along the way. Sin. We're not losing our salvation, but we think things we shouldn't think, and we, we go places maybe in our mind or physically go places that we shouldn't go. We make compromises, and we can say, oh, it's just a little dirt. But the picture here is he says, no, wash that off or you're going to die. <laughs> Don't come into my presence with that stuff. And guys, it says in first, get this verse down, and maybe you know it well, but know it even better. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just, that means he's justified in doing it, to forgive us, and, the, and what else does it say? Purify us, or literally clean us from all unrighteousness. And the context, listen, of 1 John is fellowship. It's not a confession for salvation. It's a confession for fellowship. Why do I've got to confess my sins if I'm already forgiven? Are my sins already forgiven? Yeah. But what you're doing without confessing your sin, those little compromises, those little thoughts, those little things, if you just let them go, what that does, it defiles the relationship. Right? There's stuff that we think, oh, it's no big deal, no big deal, but we're dragging that into the presence of God. And in his point of view, he's like, that stinks. It's not right. It's, it's damaging here. It brings death. If you don't confess your sin, it'll kill you. I don't mean it'll kill you. I'm not even saying it'll ruin, like physically kill you or lose your salvation. But it'll bring death to the intimacy that you once had with the Father. It kills that intimacy. It'll bring death to your usability to be effective in ministry. Because if you just let that stuff stay on there and you never deal with it and just be honest. And guys, let's, let's be true. Anybody ever done an actual foot washing ceremony? Anyone ever done that? I've done that. I'll tell you what. I would rather be the foot washer than the foot washee any day of the week. 
You know why? It's really humbling to show somebody your feet. I mean, we're on Hawaii, but I didn't grow up on Hawaii, obviously. But most of the people in the world hide their feet. <laughs> like all day long with shoes on, we just put them out there all the time in slippers. But the feet are gross. And it's embarrassing. And, and, you're, and like to show somebody your feet and just have somebody touch your feet and wash your feet, that's humbling. And guys, but that's the only way to get them clean. And that's what we got to do to Jesus. Jesus wants to wash your dirty, gross, gnarly, embarrassing stuff. But you got to be able to bear it to him. He's not going to rip your slippers off or rip your shoes off and say, give me those feet so I can wash them. You got to humble yourself and say, Lord, this is really embarrassing and I didn't even want anybody to see this and I'm kind of embarrassed that I stepped in this again, but could you wash this for me? And when we humble ourselves and confess Steve's ta taught this. The word confession in the, in the Greek is homo legeo. It's two words. Homo meaning the same. Legeo, which means to speak. It means to speak the same thing. You're just telling God what he already knows about you in the first place. Lord, I was lustful today. You might say. God doesn't go, what? You, what? you do. What? He's like, oh, I know. But I just want to tell you, God, that that wasn't right and I'm sorry, and I confess, and I forsake that, would you wash me clean from those thoughts? And he's faithful every time to do it, and he's justified every time to do it, because Jesus paid for that sin, amen? So what it does is it washes away. Now, you don't have to walk with that grimy dirt on your feet anymore. There's nothing in between you. Everything's cool, and you can just walk in the light as he is in the light, amen? But you got to show him your dirt. You got to confess your dirt, and just say, Jesus, I can't get this off. Will you wash it? Yeah, I'd love to. Amen? This might, I think this is a word of the Lord for some of us tonight. I really do. Jesus wants to wash your dirt, but you got to show it to him. He's not going to be appalled. He's not going to be, like, shocked. But he's also not going to force it on you. He's waiting for you to just confess it, be real about it to him, and he'll wash you. Why let there be anything between you and the Lord? Amen. I love this. If they were going to have any kind of service or intimacy with the Lord, they had to be washed constantly. Confessions. Great picture. Lastly, I think we'll just, well, let's see how we go here. Verse 22. Now, verse 22 through 37 He's going to kind of go back and talk a little bit about the oil that would be for anointing and the incense that they would burn. And, and I'm going to go through this quickly because in essence what this is is simply a recipe for the oil and a recipe for the incense that it was to be holy and not duplicated or used for anything else. So that's basically what it's going to say, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices, liquid myrrh, 500 shekels of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of Aramaic cane, 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make a sea, uh, excuse me, of these sacred anointing oil blended by the perfumer. It shall be holy anointing oil. And with it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, uh, the table and its utensils, the lampstand, utensils, altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the basin, the stand, you shall consecrate them. So this oil was meant for consecration, that they might be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. 
And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on your body or any ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whatever compounds, whoever, excuse me, compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from the people. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices. I don't know how to pronounce a lot of these. Uh, Stakti, uh, Anika, the galbanum, sweet spices, pure frankincense um, of equal part. Make an incense blended by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small, part of it um, in the test, uh, excuse me, part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to the composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it um, to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. And so there's actually some great little nuggets tucked in there. But again, we're going to kind of stumble upon that again later. So I'm going to leave it for there. For now, basically the oil was meant for anointing those articles of uh, furniture. And it was this idea that the Spirit of God is upon these. That are all, you know, it's holy unto the Lord. I will say this, however. Some Christians get really weird about oil. Pastor Steve was mentioning this the other day, and I was just kind of laughing because we, we got to be careful not to become superstitious about this kind of stuff. I've had people come up to me and be like, Jason, we just bought this new house. I want to go around to every room and anoint above the door jam with oil. And you know what? God may honor, God can absolutely honor that. I'm not saying like it's wrong to do that necessarily, but do we understand that there's nothing magical, that this isn't our kind of religion? We don't do superstition. We don't do enchantments. We don't do like, you know what, you know what I'm saying with this? And some people can get so weird about it, like, but this oil has frankincense in it, and it's from Israel. And if you not, like, like, I love what Pastor Steve said, so you can use Pam, whatever, but... Having said that, listen, we do have a New Testament application for this. In the book of James, and it talks about in Mark as well, that there was instances where you would anoint with oil and pray for healing. James 5, paraphrasing off the top of my head here, talks about how if there's any sick in the church, they should come to the elders of the church. That means the sick person should initiate. Sometimes people are like, how come the elders didn't come and anoint me with oil and pray for me? Listen, it actually falls on the sick person to initiate and say, I need prayer and to ask for that. And the elders come and they're, they're to anoint with oil and it's just typical of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing magical about the oil. Then there's the prayer of faith and confession of sin. And there's many times the Lord chooses to heal people doing exactly what it just says in James chapter 5. Amen? I've, I've been blessed to be a part of that many times where people said, would you, I've got cancer, I've got a cold, I've got this going on. Would you guys pray? And we huddle up and we anoint with oil, we lay hands and we pray the pray of, prayer of faith and we just expect God to heal in his way and his timing. And, and that's a New Testament application of that. Amen? And so we got that. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going for it. Chapter 31, we're going to blitzkrieg. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bazalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. 
And I filled him with the Spirit of God with ability, listen, and intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and carving wood and work for every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan. And I've given to him all able men ability that they may be able to make all that I've commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table of utensils, the, uh, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and its utensils, the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments uh, for Aaron and the priests and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. And the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I've commanded, you shall do, uh, they shall do. I love this. Just take one or two minutes on this, but listen. I've wondered about this. I wonder if Moses, when he's like listening to all the instructions and all the detail of the tabernacle we've gone through and all the elaborateness of it and all the intricacies and all the beautiful artistry and all that, I wonder if at one point Moses wasn't like, a little overwhelmed. Like, who's going to do all this? I wonder if Moses is like, dude, I didn't even get through like eighth grade shop. Like, I don't know how to do this stuff. I wonder if it was just a huge relief to Moses when God's like, oh, and by the way, as we're wrapping this up, I've tagged Bezalel and Oho, whatever that guy's name is. We'll just call him Oho. I've, I have, listen, called them, filled them with the Holy Spirit, give them intelligence, um, artistic ability, gifted them in every way, and they've got other guys with them, and they're the dudes that are going to do all the work. I love this, you guys. A couple of just quick, punchy little applications. Number one, I love the fact that God never intended that Moses would do all the work. Did you know that God never intends for one person or one group in the church to do all the work? Amen? That's why the church is compared to, in the Bible, a body. A body has all kinds of different parts that have different functions, and when they all operate in their place and do their function, the body operates as it's supposed to. And guys, I want you to be encouraged. You have a place in the body of Christ. Not one person is supposed to do all the work. The pastor's not supposed to do all the work. The deacons aren't supposed to do all the work. The missionaries aren't supposed to do all the work. We're to all do our part. Amen? And what I love about these guys, they weren't worship leaders. They weren't Bible teachers. They weren't prophets. They were really good at making stuff out of bronze. They were, they were artists. They were like cabinet guys, if you would. They, they, they loved working with their hands. And I want you to notice, that stuff was a gift by the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? That intelligence and that bent that they had and that desire to do those things and, and the artistry that came with it, that was straight gift from the Holy Spirit. And guess what? When they were doing those things that God had put in front of them to do with the talents that God had given them, that is just as spiritual as, you know, somebody preaching a sermon or an evangelist doing a call for salvation. Does that make sense? 
Sometimes we think that if I'm not doing this kind of work or this kind of work in the church, it's somehow sub-spiritual. No. God has gifted you with talents and gifts that are specific to you, and he's filled you with the Holy Spirit. Did you guys know that one of the prerequisites for the deacons in the early church, not the elders and the pastors, the deacons, they had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Sometimes we wrongly think, oh, they're just doing the, the grunt work or this and then and the real spiritual work. No, 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 no. The real spiritual work is doing however the Holy Spirit has gifted you and you're functioning in that for the kingdom of God and for his glory, then you are absolutely fulfilling your purpose. Amen? And how we need to grab a hold of this in the body of Christ where we realize I've been gifted, you've been gifted differently than everyone else, and my greatest accomplishment is when I'm just operating in the things that God has gifted me in, but I'm using it for his kingdom and for his glory. God bless Christian plumbers and Christian mechanics and Christian woodworkers and Christian whatever who just use their craft and their art and whatever for God's kingdom. Amen? Much we could say about that. One last thing I will end on with this little section is this. This just nailed me. It was God who called him, God who gifted them, and God who appointed them. But this is what kind of caught my attention. God declares in chapter 31, I have, past tense, already called Bezalel and Oho. What are, how do you say the guy's name again? Oholiab or whatever. I've already called them. But guys, it's not till at the end of chapter 35 and the beginning of chapter 36 that Moses tells these guys, hey, by the way, God wants you to do this work. And a lot of stuff happens between chapter 30 and chapter 35. My point is simply this. I don't think in chapter 35 when God's like, Bezalel, Oholiabah, um, God's called you to do this work. I don't think it was like that moment, like all of a sudden they're just like, I think I just want to go work with wood and bronze and have artistic art ability. Like it just dawned on me, like in that moment. Like I think it's safe to presume that they all along had kind of this bent towards that, this desire to do that, this gifting to do that. And I wonder, now this is speculation, so I, I will admit to that. I wonder if these guys ever were like, if God's gifted me to do this, and I have this desire to operate in this way, how come I'm not actually doing anything for the kingdom of God? How come I can't use this? But there came a day when Moses said, hey, God's called you to do this, and here's, here's your venue. Here's your place to do it now. Are you guys tracking with me? And guys, this is often how it works in God's economy when it comes to callings and desires. Oftentimes, there'll be a promise, and then there's a placement. In other words, you'll put something on your heart and a gifting and a calling and a desire. Maybe it's missionary work. Maybe it's um, worship. Maybe it's some kind of thing you want to do for the kingdom of God, and you just feel bent that way, but there's no opportunity to do it. God will bring that opportunity, but guess what happens in the meantime? Preparation. Preparation. God's refining your skills. God's building you into the woman of God. He wants you to be the man of God. He wants you to be. And I think you can make a biblical case from this from tip to tail that when God puts a desire and a promise and a, 
an unction in your heart to do something, oftentimes there'll be a, a span of time before he actually puts you into that position. And in the meantime, there's all this preparation and development getting you ready for that. Does that make sense? And I guarantee you this, it always takes longer than you wish it would. <laughs> I'm ready, Lord, send me. Let's go right now. And he's like, oh, I love that. That's awesome. So what I'm going to have you do is go to the desert for 40 years. And then when you feel completely inadequate and unable and you think I've totally forgotten about you, boom, then that's when you're ready. That was Moses' job, right? So I, wanted, I just felt like I needed to say this because I, I feel like maybe there's some in here that maybe you're feeling discouraged. Like, what about these things I want to do for the kingdom of God? What, I've got these talents and gifts, and I don't have my, how come there's no place for me? And how come no one's asked me to come do this job yet? I just want to encourage you, if God has put something in you and a promise and a calling, read this again. God called him. God gifted him. God appointed him. They didn't have to do it themselves. God was the one who raises them up, puts them in place, and does his deal. Amen? And he'll do that with you. In the meantime, you be faithful to whatever God has put in front of you right now because he's training you. He's training you. We have to finish, and I know I'm late, but we're so far into it now, we just got to finish. Chapter 31, the last paragraph. I appreciate you guys hanging in there tonight. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, keep my Sabbath. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, you shall be cut off from among my, his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. <laughs> Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. This is a key verse. Listen, verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony. There it is. Tables of stone written with the finger of God. As we close off this section, right at the very end, after chapters and chapters of discussing all the plans for the tabernacle, he ends it by saying this, oh, and above all, don't violate the Sabbath. Now, I'm not going to rant into a big thing on the Sabbath. I'll just say this. Notice with me, the Sabbath was a sign between God and who? Israel. Quickly, I just want to say this because sometimes Christians read this and we're like, oh, we got to start keeping the Sabbath. I just refer you to Colossians 2. The Sabbath, like any of the other parts of the law, were a shadow of the reality. Jesus fulfilled that. He is our Sabbath. We are not under the law to keep the Sabbath day. However, it is still a good principle to take a day of rest. That's all I'm going to say about that for now. I just want to end it by saying this. Why did God end this whole section after giving all these instructions and all this work? Why does he end it by saying, oh, and don't forget, rest on the seventh day? Because, guys, he just gave a humongous job to the children of Israel. And I believe he just knows their tendency. They're going to get after it. They're going to work hard. They're going to go for it. And he goes, uh-uh-uh, in your busyness to serve me, 
don't forget to rest. Don't forget to rest. It, the work is not what's, you need to just take that day and find your rest in me. And that, that ministers to my heart because, you know, when you think about kingdom work, when you think about gospel work, when you think about what we're engaged in, the scope of the need of salvation in the world, there's never a moment in, in, in life where there's not a pressing need somewhere and somehow and, and something to do and to be busy. And yet God says, don't forget to rest. Don't forget to come apart and find your rest in me. Or else you're just going to absolutely blow apart. Amen? Lord, I thank you for these Bible students. I thank you for their commitment to roll out on a Wednesday night to read Exodus 30 and 31. Crazy. And Lord, I think that they probably feel what I feel. We're going through this and we're hitting a couple things here and there, but it goes so deep. It's so good. We could be here forever. Thank you that we've had some time to drink in your word, to just dig into it and take it in. And I pray that your word would not return void. They would find a place in our heart. We grab onto those little applications you've been whispering to us tonight. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you. We give you this evening and we pray a safe journey home in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, why don't you greet one another, give a big hug, high five, handshake, and then you guys are dismissed.